and I'm coding all night. Project won't compile, it'll be alright. Computer science for life, and that's my direction. Instead of B-Balls, my homies throw exceptions. Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech game being implanted and developed in this by this community. Joining us on the program tonight, Cooper, a sysadmin who lives the open source solutions, and Cursor, a graduate student specializing in RF technology. But first, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers a custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the effort, the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and email us at info at dangerousminds.io. I'll be glad to talk to you about it. This week on Dangerous Minds Podcast, we have Oliver Medevic. Thank you for joining us today. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us what biohacking, grinding, transhumanism means to you? Uh, hi, everybody. So I'm a, I'm a director of uh, Biomedical Engineering Lab at Cooper Union. I'm also one of the co-founders of GenSpace, native New Yorker, so that's a little bit about me. I got into the whole DIY bio. Well, first of all, years and years ago, when I first heard the term DIY bio, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a company like DIYbio.com that sells something uh, rather than a movement, um, because I was, I was teaching at the time at Harvard. And... Um, and my first kind of real foray into that was leading an iGEM team, which uh, stands for the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition, which is basically a, a sort of a, a well, a competition slash festival uh, of, of uh, genetic engineering for uh, uh, college students. Now it's, it's been expanded to high school students and DNY bio labs. Uh, but in 2009, I, I led a small Harvard team um, where we designed um, some really interesting genetic circuits that we were attempting to have microbes communicate using light. Um, so we got that kind of halfway working. And that kind of uh, took me out of my bubble because I'm trained as a research scientist and this was more of an engineering discipline. And being able to kind of really think outside of the box and say, hey, let's build something if it doesn't exist in nature, um, you know, just added a different way of looking at um, biotechnology, at least for me, because I, I was more used to applying it to answer questions in research rather than using it to uh, build something. Um, so that's kind of, and then when I started GenSpace, um, that, actually, that actually arose out of another lab that I had started at the time in 2008 with a good friend of mine, Mitchell Joachim. Uh, runs an organization called Terraform One, which is basically a design and architecture and really kind of futurist city design uh, group. And we were roommates um, back in grad school when he was going to the graduate school of design and I was going to, to work in the lab at the medical school. We always had ideas and we were bouncing them off of each other. And uh, one thing we kind of lamented was that there was no common space for designers and artists and biologists to kind of meet and kind of, uh, you know, use all of their different skill sets and put them together into something cool. So years later, Mitch had found a space in Brooklyn, uh, 33th Flatbush Avenue, and we started a lab there called BioWorks Institute, where we basically just were working on our own um, projects and, you know, had it open to designers. And uh, I was doing some kind of funky stuff. I was uh, trying to grow um, watches or, or watch bands and other parts out of, out of 
out of car, cow cartilage that I had harvested. And that actually ended up in, in a book uh, by Will Myers called Biodesign. Um, there's, a, there's a page of that in there. And uh, later, um, I met some people. Uh, Nareet Barshai was one of the early co-founders of Genspace. And uh, she was scouting for places to basically park um, a lab that they wanted to open up to the entire community. And she, you know, through word of mouth, got in contact with me and the owner of the building. And uh, she thought this would be perfect. And then I was introduced to the other members of her team, Ellen Jorgensen. And <clears throat> at that point, you know, I decided to stop working on the Bioworks Institute project, which was just sort of more of a kind of inclusive, um, you know, kind of a boutique bio lab and uh, team up with team up with them and basically make this uh, space in a truly open community lab that would basically be available to uh, everybody. And right now the lab um, takes members just, you know, they basically do, uh, it just you pay dues, it's sort of like a gym membership model and, and you have access to a biotechnology lab. So as long as you're doing something, you know, safe, biosafety level one, uh, which just means you're working on things that aren't pathogenic, uh, and you're not working on any um, DNA sequences that are going to confer any kind of toxicity, then you're free to go and, and pretty much um, do as much biohacking as you want. Um, and we also offer classes for, for people who are interested but don't know, uh, you know, can't tell their A's, T's, G's from C's. So we do that as well. So that's kind of a little bit of background to how I got introduced uh, into this field. So what of your what is your classification of an augmentative and centenarian, and how does it relate to your research? Well, my PhD actually was with uh, Dr. David Sinclair at Harvard Medical School. So I was one of his first graduate students. Um, uh, there's there's uh, so it's me and um, you know, one postdoc and two other grad students who, who were there at the beginning. And uh, we were working on uh, pathways that regulate aging in response to certain environmental stimuli like calorie restriction. So we were trying to identify the genetic components. And I was, I was basically the yeast geneticist. That's, I was measuring, you know, the physiology of, of yeast in various ways and seeing if various treatments would affect their lifespan and seeing which genes were responsible. So I have, you know, and that was back, that was, I started that back in 2000. So that was, that was really what drove me into biology was trying to answer this fundamental question. A, what are the mechanisms of aging? Uh, what, is there a theoretical groundwork? Is there, is there some sort of theoretical model that can encompass every living organism? Do all organisms, you know, um, age in some way? I know that there's, you know, obviously there's been some papers published suggesting certain organisms don't age, but really at the at the cellular level, what's what's really going on? So that's a fundamental research question. But coupled to that is if you do figure out what's going on, then then you can apply that to you know biomedical engineering and say, well, let's do something about it, right? So then then we come in come into applications. So there's really two sides to the coin. So um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's coming out right now that you know suggests to me that even though without any interventions, we're probably hitting you know a wall where human lifespan is maximizing at like a theoretical limit of 125 at the extreme, you know, 115 to 125, 125 years of age, perhaps. So we'd have to do some radical interventions to get past that barrier. Right now, medically, we don't have we don't have anything in the, the medical arsenal, 
if somebody's in their 90s and wishes to live longer. I mean, that's pretty much everything else is just palliative. You don't really have any kind of any kind of option. But I think um, some of the developments that are coming out there, we perhaps will start seeing people break that barrier. And um, along with that is greater health span, because that's one thing that I want to really emphasize is that you're not going to get longer lifespan without greater health spans. We're not talking about somebody living 150 years and, you know, being decrepit. You know, if you can live 150 years, then that means you're, you're pretty much doing fantastic at age 100, meaning that you're probably still running races, and, and, you know. So we're talking about people being physiologically um, young for much longer. And by doing so, you basically postpone, you know, perhaps permanently uh, certain diseases of aging that go up in time, such as many cancers, Alzheimer's, dementias, all sorts of other, you know, conditions that um, are a consequence of aging. So by basically tackling this root cause, you essentially end up curing a whole lot of things, um, you know, that makes life miserable um, the older you get. And, um, and I think we're starting to see some of these things, um, kind of the low-hanging fruit. Like I gave a talk at Utrecht and the kind of mentioned, I, you know, made up a term like called augmentives, meaning something that you take uh, that will essentially reverse or, you know, um, at least reverse some aspects of aging and, you know, perhaps give you um, extra time and, but certainly greater health, um, you know, as opposed to supplements, which basically are, you know, when you hear supplement, you think about something you take that you're missing from your diet. And so a dietary supplement like calcium or, you know, vitamin A or, or something like that. Um, but with augmentives, it would be more of something that you're replacing in your body that has gone down as a result of your physiology, basically your metabolism winding down as a result of uh, major, you know, um, factors due to aging. Uh, some of these things, so they've been some really, some of these things are small molecules. There's a company out there called Elysium, which was started by uh, Dr. Leonard Morenti, who is the the thesis advisor for um, my PI, Dr. David Sinclair, and um, they basically have a pill, which is basically a combination of two drugs that have um, shown great promise in laboratory studies, um, and they're also generally recognized as safe, which is an FDA designation for something that, you know, we know that if you take lots of it, it's not going to hurt you. It's a, it's a compound that naturally occurs in cells. So it's a blend basically of two things, nicotinamide, mononucleotide riboside, I think. Um, it might be I might be off on which, because there's a couple of derivatives of, of nicotinamide. That might be one of them. And the other is a plant polyphenol that has shown promise, um, I believe, in you know activating uh, certain enzymes like sirtuins, which are responsible for uh, protecting DNA. Um, so these are so the nicotinamide is, is a naturally occurring compound in your cells that goes down with time. Um, the plant polyphenols um, aren't a naturally occurring compound in your body, but they augment or boost the activity of enzymes whose activity goes down as a result of aging. So there's no human uh, lifespan data, obviously, yet, because, you know, human lifespans take a while to, you know, to get the data, but mouse, mouse trials and every other 
you know, trial that has been done um, as far as in the, in the laboratory rather than the clinic has shown um, really phenomenal results. So, you know, that's an example of, of certain compounds that will be made available, you know, available eventually. And, and maybe as we start learning about more compounds packaged into more diverse formulations, for example, like uh, people take turmeric, for example, in their, you know, if you add that to your food, it, it has uh, really beneficial anti-inflammatory effects. So, um, you know, having perhaps compounds that you take, maybe, you know, like a, a poly pill or something like that, where you, su you supplement or augment um, many failing systems in your body, uh, you'll at least um, reverse some aspects of aging. Um, there's also some interesting studies in, in peptides that have been injected in people. Um, uh, I, actually, I don't think, well, I think the clinical trials are just starting. They, they have been testing them on, on mice, and they actually have shown some really dramatic effects in reversing aspects of, uh, of dementia or Alzheimer's, um, really quite dramatic. Uh, compounds like um, interleukin-33, uh, these are basically compounds that are, these are small um, molecule or small proteins that are released by immune cells and again they have an anti-inflammatory effect and a lot of a lot of uh, aspects of aging a lot of the degradative aspects have to do with chronic inflammation so having this compound actually aided the immune cells in, in clearing up some of the some of the plaques that were building up in, in these mouse brains so that was that was quite impressive uh, when I saw that so I, I think we'll start seeing formulations come out. The problem is currently um, the FDA doesn't recognize aging as uh, a disease. You know, a dis definition of a disease is something that only a certain subset of people get. Uh, we all age, so therefore it's normal and it's not a disease. Uh, but right now there's some trials taking place and there's a researcher, uh, Dr. Niels Barzilai, who's starting a uh, a clinical trial with metformin, which is a drug that's been um, taken for a long time, and uh, it's taken now for diabetes, but it's uh, had some really striking, strikingly beneficial effects in you know reversing aspects of aging. You know, uh, by aspects of aging, I basically mean you know things that you measure, uh, such as uh, muscle strength, that sort of thing, and. Um, the cognitive decline and all sorts of other things. And I believe they're trying to, to I think this, this may be the first trial, um, I have to double check, but this may be the first trial that the FDA has approved to be specifically for combating aging, right? Rather than uh, a side effect of aging. Currently right now, if you want to have a pill that, if you want to sell a pill that's a plant polyphenol, you know, it's going to reverse many aspects of aging, but as a result, a lot of, a lot of other diseases will go down as well, such as heart disease and so on and so forth. So you can market that for heart disease, but you can't market that as an anti-aging pill per se. So we think that um, by we, me and my colleagues, because I started another nonprofit that funds aging research called Lifespan.io, uh, check it out. It's a crowdfunding model for research. Um, we think that uh, having it, having aging redesignated as a, as a disease will um, kind of open the floodgates for a lot of drug development, and you know, so that's that's I think a push in a positive direction. And again, you know, <clears throat> I want to emphasize that this is all going to you know affect healthy lifespan 
right? So this is this is this is something that will let you be physiologically as healthy and as youthful as possible. It's not going to make you live forever, obviously, because we're still you know meat and bones. Something something probably won't take us out, uh, but. You know, as long as, but at least it won't be, you know, something inside of us that that blinds us down. So uh, that's that's my that's my connection to aging research, and, and um, that's it's still something I'm really um, interested in. So you mentioned supplements. Uh, there's a lot of research at the minute looking at nootropics in terms of focus, recall, enhancement, along with sleep. Um, Jeff Tibbetts uh, has been mentioned a few times in that research. Do you have any comment into these advances or any information that could fuel that research? Well, <clears throat> certainly sleep is, is really important. There's been some novel papers published in the past you know, few years. By few, I mean two or two years, maybe even one, one and a half years, which suggested that um, sleep actually, you know, one necessity for sleep, uh, one reason for the necessity of sleep is that it clears out the junk in your brain. Uh, basically, there's, there's, as your cells metabolize, they release um, various toxins, degrade, you know, oxidized proteins. And the study actually showed that these peaked in the cerebrospinal fluid um, during sleep, suggesting that, you know, this is sort of a kind of a, you know, to kind of use a loose term, a cleansing kind of taking place. Um, and certainly early experiments that were done back in the 60s, I think, which, you know, you probably won't get animal welfare committees to sign off now, but they, you know, keeping rats awake for as long as possible, they pretty much died within two weeks, right? So of really, I believe, no known causes. So it, clearly sleep is very important, so important that, you know, unlike food, you're actually going to die much quicker without sleep sleep than without food. So that means that it's, you know, it's uh, more, you know, at least, well, more important than eating, right? So, and we know from people who've actually voluntarily kept themselves awake that, you know, for many, many days, I think the record's been like 11 days, but, um, but you're, you're in bad shape after that for many months, perhaps many years, uh, you have severe depression. Um, so, I'm inclined to, you know, believe that data that there is uh, a toxicity that has to be, you know, cleared out and uh, having enough sleep to do that um, enables, uh, enables that to happen. Now, what are all the triggers that trigger this? Why does it happen, you know, in such a circadian, you know, manner? Why do we need to be unconscious for this to happen, right? As why can't it just happen throughout the day? I, I don't know those things. That's still active research. Um, but clearly there's, it's a really fundamental mechanism because um, most organisms that have a nervous system need to sleep in, in some sort of sense uh, in which they shut off certain aspects of the brain. So, uh, so yeah, as far as neurotropics are concerned, you know, these things, um, I don't know the mechanisms of action for, for most of them. I, you know, some of them could be dopamine agonists, for example, um, but there has to be something for these neurotropics to act on, right? So if you have if you have damage to those neurons, they probably won't work. So uh, I don't know if neurotropics are more or less or equally effective for somebody who's much older than somebody who's much younger, for example. Um, that and I'm not sure if anybody's done that trial. I'd be interested to find out. Um you had mentioned uh, Lifespan.io uh, as the, the new organization you're working with. Can you tell us some more of the, the current research that you, uh, this, this group you're with is working on? Knowing anything proprietary? No, no, so sure. So um, all the projects we accept, you know, are, are out in the public domain. You could, you know, you could Google it. Um, 
so this we started about two years ago. We founded a, a so myself, uh, Keith Camito, and others. We founded an organization called uh, Life Extension Advocacy Foundation, or LEAF for short, where uh, we basically would try to get funds for um, biomedical research directed towards aging, either fundamental mechanisms or you know perhaps some therapeutics. And uh, we we were really tossing around the idea, what's the best way to get get the word out and raise funding? And uh, we figured that, you know, having the public directly engaged in specific research projects um, through a crowdfunding platform might be the way to do it. And since we're a nonprofit, we can then fiscally sponsor projects, uh, meaning that if it's taking place in a for-profit for profit company, that, you know, your donations would, you know, um, potentially be tax deductible and the company could potentially write it off as expenses because it's going directly to the project as long as the records are kept. Uh, so we've successfully funded now three projects. So unlike Kickstarter or Indiegogo, uh, we, we really curate these projects. So we typically have like one project um, every quarter um, and we have a scientific advisory board uh, consisting of, you know, a lot of top research scientists and luminaries in aging research, such as Judith Campisi, um, uh, George Church. And, you know, we, we vet the projects for, for uh, scientific merit. And um, we don't, you know, one thing we don't look at is we don't look at whether a project is, is um, you know, fitting anybody's pet theory for aging. You know, whatever you you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as you know it's 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 based on on science. And we funded successfully three uh, projects: two from uh, Sense, which is an organization started by Aubrey de Grey, um, and one from an independent group called the Major Mouse Testing uh, Program (MMTP). And I think each, on average, those, each of these projects on average raise about sixty thousand um, dollars. Some some seventy two thousand, some a little less. So, um, so we, I, we've been, we've been quite, you know, surprised and excited, you know, that how much on average each of the projects has actually raised, um, suggesting that there's a really strong interest in this. So one of the projects I can, you know, I can talk about all three of these projects and we have a couple in the pipeline right now that I can't talk about, uh, because we're still vetting them and we still, you know, they, they may or may not go up. You know, depending on, on, on how much work is done on the researchers and to, to get all the materials up. Um, but one of the projects was, you know, really cool. It was um, the first project we actually launched was uh, a way to get cells to live longer. The hypothesis was, you know, if we move the cells that are in these little plant, these little cell powerhouses or power plants called mitochondria, they have their own little genome and they encode about 13 genes. And if we move them into the nucleus, which is a more protective area, could we make the cell less prone to oxidative damage? Um, the reasoning being is that most of the genes in the mitochondria have over, you know, uh, millions of years, billions of years migrated into, uh, you know, slowly into the nucleus. And the reasoning is, is that that's a more protective environment. It's less harsh because the mitochondria are producing all sorts of free radicals. So can we finish, you know, their, their hypothesis was if we finish what evolution started, can we make these cells into super cells? And at the same time, it, would be, it was a neat engineering project, but it was also a neat uh, basic research question because if that's what evolution has been doing, then the theory suggests that if you finish moving these genes in, you should get an improvement in cell function, you know, if that's if that's where most of the damage is occurring is, is due to mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, so they managed to get some 
really, uh, really awesome preliminary data. So um, that was the first project. And the second project from SENS was actually, uh, they had a novel screen. They wanted to screen for um, small molecules that inhibit uh, kind of a very esoteric pathway in cancer. Um, it's basically when tumors uh, develop in the body, they have to they have to circumvent many surveillance mechanisms, and to get a tumor to keep dividing, you know, uh, nonstop, they have to maintain uh, the ends of their chromosomes, which are called telomeres. And there's several different ways by which telomeres can be maintained. And there's right now drugs that are being developed that can tap that can inhibit these enzymes, so the telomeres don't get extended, so the cancer cells can't grow forever, you know, essentially. Um, but there are backup mechanisms. So what uh, they were doing is trying to figure out, a, trying to find drugs that can target these backup mechanisms. So sort of like, you know, if you have all of these compounds that target a cancer cell, um, there's still potential that it's going to mutate its way out and find a back door. So this was essentially trying to finally come up with, you know, drugs that totally, you know, um, prevent a cancer cell from, you know, from, uh, from developing into a full-fledged metastatic uh, tumor. Um, and, and this is related to aging because, you know, the rates of cancer go up considerably um, when you age. So, and nobody has been looking for compounds uh, that they're aware of that target this mechanism. So this was something that was completely not being looked at just because it is rather esoteric and it's really um, only a small minority of cancers get them. But if, if you start applying treatments, then you will select for those small minority of cancers eventually, and they will become, you know, the majority. So they were trying to head that off in the past. So that was a pretty, pretty cool project that's taking place right now. And the MMTP project was basically um, kind of a consortium of laboratories where any potentially useful drug like a plant, plant polyphenol or interleukins or some sort of supplement that comes out, uh, they could immediately uh, pipeline it into their into their um, mouse trials, and basically it's an ongoing uh, lifespan experiment for mouse mice, right? So there will be a continual pool of mice that have various compounds, and there's a control mice, and after a certain period of time, many months <clears throat> or a few years, they'll be able to see whether or not there was actual lifespan extension in, in mice. So so they, they wanted to do this. Uh, so I believe some of the compounds they were starting with were compounds that were already um, approved by the FDA for certain other conditions. So that, that way they could be potentially fast-tracked if they turn out to have beneficial effects. Uh, so those are the three three projects that were successfully funded thus far, and like I said, we have a we have about three or four more that were in the process of vetting. Sounds like a lot of work going on there. Now, after researching you before having you on the on the program, I noticed that you mentioned BioWorks Institute Laboratory for Art and Biology on your LinkedIn. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, as well as speak towards biodesign and what is open wetware and its possible role in your own research? Like I stated earlier, uh, BioWorks Institute was, you know, um, kind of not, I wouldn't say the first of its kind, because there's certainly, um, there's certainly been labs that have, you know, started way, way earlier where they combined biology and art, um, but not that many, right? It's still, it's still few and far between. Um, so you could, you know, at the time, there was only literally a handful of labs uh, that were doing this. By handful, I mean you can count on one hand. And we basically, 
again, we, we wanted a kind of a, an open space where, where people that were normally not associated with biotech could have access to tools of biotech. Um, and that meant think people like architects. Because um, as biotech, as the role of biotech expands, I think we'll start, you know, we will start seeing, you know, um, modified uh, forms of cells and other life that has been engineered to do something um, different for various applications. And normally when you think of biotech, you think of a microbe that makes, you know, insulin or you think of, you know, you think of gene therapy. So it's kind of a big medical slant. And, and then there's the whole controversy with genetically modified foods, um, which people have a philosophical aversion to in, in many parts. Um, but we've also wanted to see, well, what else is out there? And there are microbes you could, you know, modify systems now to produce novel biomaterials, for example. And so you might end up having a house built out of genetically engineered components, right? So you might have, might have a, a you know, tree that's been genetically modified or bamboo that's been genetically modified with, with proteins, you know, from other organisms, uh, you know, such as, who knows, like I'm just tossing this out there, spider silk. So you can now have like an ultra, you know, ultra strong growing material. And that would be, you know, that would be a byproduct of biotech. So this is sort of, you know, some of the ways that biotech can, you know, start being used, uh, you know, and start being used in a very uh, renewable, uh, you know, responsible fashion. And, you know, so we, we wanted to sort of uh, introduce these tools uh, to others and see what they come up with, right? Because, um, architects and um, designers and people who do things outside of medicine, you know, they have other needs and other applications. So unless we, unless they know what the tools are, right, they're, they're, they're not going to be able to know what the potential is at the, at the moment. So, um, so that was one of the kind of prime motivating drivers. And uh, lately we've seen some really Cool projects take place out of GenSpace that uh, um, incorporated um, design, art, and um, biology. One project that, that stands out in my mind was um, Heather Dewey Hagborg several years ago uh, started a project called Stranger, Stranger Visions, I think, um, where she basically was picking up cigarette butts and chewing, chewing gum from the streets of New York City and then using the lab at GenSpace to extract the DNA of whoever spit it out and then um, use a technique called PCR or polymerase chain reaction in our lab to amplify the bits of DNA. So she didn't know any of this going in she, her, and she basically, you know, learned it and, um, and, but had a project in mind and then ended up, you know, sequencing, sending out this, the, the amplified DNA for sequence analysis and uh, comparing it to other sequences I think she wrote some software that helped her do that to sequences in a database that correlated with certain phenotypic traits, such as potential for certain eye colors, hair color, um, ethnicity, sex. And she would, um, she would then 3D print how they, these people potentially looked like and kind of mounted their heads on a wall. And that was a great project because it raised, it raised a lot of social and there's a lot of social and legal questions um, that were already around, but it didn't really attract people because it was buried in, you know, in dense scientific papers and prose. Um, but she kind of meant, she kind of made the whole issue of genetic privacy kind of literally in your face by putting that up there and saying, look, this is what we can do now. 
like, and and it's only from only from five different locations on the chromosomes. Once we once we sequence hundred million people or a billion people, we'll be able to know exactly what you look like, exactly what your problems are, and you know if you do epigenetic sequencing, maybe even the traumatic incidents that have occurred in your life. You know um, whether you're addicted to something, whether you've been beaten as a kid, maybe things that you don't know about yourself. Um, and that's that's a Right now, that's a technical challenge. It's not. It's not a theoretical challenge, right? So once once sequencing comes up to speed and the annotation starts to really, you know, um, become much more, uh, you know, much more prevalent, um, that's going to be possible. And her project really raised that issue, and I think in a way that no other project has. And that was that was in collaboration with an artist, you know. So that was a biologist didn't come up with this project. Uh, a lawyer didn't come up with this project. A bioethicist didn't come up with this project. It was an artist. So by, that's what I mean by opening up the tools of biotech to different people. You never know what is, you know, what kind of genius lies lurking somewhere. And um, and that was really kind of the motivating goal for having a space such as this. And also allowing different people, you know, like biologists such as myself, interact with artists and, you know, you know, they use the term cross-pollination, but, but really have a space where this type of stuff can really cross-pollinate. So in other recordings, other uh, conversations, you've heard of other bio studios that you know, conduct similar type of research and developing genius outside of the normal realm of biotech, as you alluded to just a moment ago. Do you, uh, does your group, uh, at all network with some of these others to combine research and further as a, as a whole, kind of like a exosphere in South America. Um, there also is like a big one in Austin and in LA. It just makes me wonder if, if y'all combine efforts at all. Well, certainly not, not really officially. Um, there's a lot of crosstalk taking place. Um, you know, at one point, uh, I was hosting a, uh, an online journal club at GenSpace where basically uh, different different groups would uh, have... So a journal club is basically where scientists or other interested parties read the latest research and then dissect the paper. So the actual primary research paper, not, not something that's been filtered through, you know, um, or really watered down in the media, but the actual data and see well, how does it stand. Um, so that was, you know, that was a fun collaborative effort. Um, iGEM, which I mentioned earlier, uh, and I also briefly mentioned has now a community biotech division, and that was through the efforts of Ella Jorgensen, who's um, currently the executive director and also co-founder of the space. So after trying to, after going into iGEM by teaming up with, you know, universities, there's now a division that's, you can just be a community biotech lab and, and submit a project. Um, so that's really cool. So iGEM really, you know, opened up the space where you can now meet other people from DIY bio and talk to them face to face and and meet them in this venue. Um, but other than that, it's, you know, we, we, we do talk to one another a lot. We do, but it's very informal, you know? So you would, if you go to a different country, you'll visit their, the biotech space there, right? The, the DIY bio space. Um, and each space is, is different and focuses on different things, partly due to the particular regulations in whatever country they're in and uh, partly due to just the people um, and their, and their interests. Um, 
certainly the most kind of, well, conventional collaborations are, are citizen science, where you have a project that needs to take place. And again, um, project that was started by Ellen at Genspace was uh, uh, the Gowanus sequencing project, where the Gowanus Canal is this heavily polluted, you know, body of water in Brooklyn that's people have been dumping industrial waste in for a long time, and it's now a super fun site. But the interesting thing is doing that, doing this kind of nasty thing to an in, to a localized environment actually might you know, there's always there's always something good that comes out of something bad. I think, it, in, and in this case, um, you've been subjecting microbes in that spot to really strict, stringent evolutionary pressure to to allow them to deal with these toxins, right? So they have to they have the mutations sort of these toxins uh, weed weed out the mutants that are able to more successfully metabolize and you know deconstruct these toxins so the goal of the project was to get these you know microbes out of that environment and sequence them and see if we can come up with novel enzymes that can that can degrade um, you know that can degrade toxins uh, that uh, that are spilled elsewhere and do the job faster. It's sort of like a, you know, super bioengineered industrial, you know, cleaning compound, right? Um, most people don't know this, but there are genetically engineered enzymes in a lot of your laundry detergents that do just that. So if you can come up with, you know, a super laundry detergent that's mostly enzymatic and has a cocktail of enzymes that have evolved over a hundred years to deal with these types of toxins like, you know, PVCs and that kind of thing. And, and or, or maybe, you know, uh, these, you know, plasticizers that mimic human hormones, then, then that would be great. Um, so interestingly, you know, we're trying, they're trying to, they're trying to preserve or, 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 or record um, the ecosystem of this super fun site before it becomes um, basically wiped out and then you know replanted with something more natural. So it's 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 kind of it's kind of interesting where sort of socially where where um, you know where where a, a human induced kind of evolutionary experiment um, uh, is now in danger of being cleaned up, right, so to speak. So and we're trying to they're trying to basically um, catalog these microbes before before they go away. So. Can you give us a brief overview of CRISPR uh, for people that are unfamiliar with the tool? Uh, sure. Um, so, you know, the core of the core of genetic engineering is really cutting open DNA and putting some new sequence in, right? So it's basically cutting and splicing or cutting and pasting. And a lot of the enzymes that we use for cutting come from nature. Um, that was the origins of, of biotech or, or of genetic engineering biotech was in the you know early 70s where certain bacterial enzymes known as restriction endonucleases were uh, discovered in nature and then used in a purified form by scientists to um, cut specific sequences open so different sequences can be spliced in. And by doing that, you now have recombinant DNA. Um, so over the years, easier uh, methods have been developed. Enzymes that allow you to do, be more flexible, enzymes that allow you to cut within cells instead of you know outside of cells. And CRISPR and its associated protein uh, Cas9, and there's many different variants of, of, of the Cas proteins and CRISPR, depending on the species of bacteria. 
um, is the latest iteration of this, and it's basically um, a programmable, what's known as a programmable endonuclease, which means that by changing the, the so by changing the nucleic acid part of CRISPR-Cas9, when I say CRISPR, CRISPR just is an acronym for clustered regularly interspersed palindromic repeats, which is a mouthful that just basically is a is a, is a section of DNA in the bacteria that is essentially um, an antiviral database. Um, you know, essentially, not by analogy, it literally is. And the, the bacteria, um, whenever virus is infected, which are known as bacteriophages, um, bacteria, uh, the enzymes inside can make copies of the sequence and splice it in to the bacterial chromosome. And when this same virus then reinfects, that um, bit of nucleic acid, which is then converted into RNA, acts as a guide to, to basically guide the endonuclease, which is the, the enzyme that does the cutting, to the specific viral DNA, and then that virus is then chopped up and basically prevented from uh, infecting the cell. Um, and like any good viral database, um, it updates itself frequently, so old sequences are removed from bacteria, new sequences come in, uh, because there's only so much space in a bacterial chromosome to, to put this all in. And what so this is how it naturally works. So, um, you know, scientists over the years put two and two together and realized that, hey, what if we, if we can just make up our own RNA sequence and mix it with Cas9, then we can get it to cut any DNA that we want specifically in precise locations and very easily because um, the, early, the earlier generation of, of programmable endonucleases were um, all protein-based, and protein engineering is a lot harder than um, DNA engineering. Um, in fact, DNA engineering and now is rather trivial. Building, building small pieces of DNA is, is very true. Um, it's, it's, the technology is 30 years old. It's based on organic chemistry, and companies will do it for you, so all you have to do is send out a sequence. And this basically allowed a lot more people and a lot more labs to do the type of work that um, took a lot more money uh, and a lot more manpower to do. So um, that's really the CRISPR revolution is that this is this has made it so much easier um, for you know even DIY bio labs um, to come up with an basically an, an endonuclease that you can program to cut anywhere. Now, that's all it does. I mean, there's modified versions of CRISPR that do other things, and I don't have time to go over those, but they, you know, I'll, I'll have to emphasize that um, it's it's just one tool in, in a biotechnologist's toolkit. And once you cut DNA, you still have to splice something in there. You still have to test it. And, you know, it's basically like coming up with a better hammer. It's a powerful tool in those that know how to use it. Um, so, so if you, you know, for people who have been hearing about this and, and are kind of freaked out because they think that this is not going to enable anybody to become mad scientist, genetic engineer in their living room. I mean, they, you still need a whole laboratory and other things to, to, you know, to, to work with this, right? So, um, you still, it's, it's one tool in your workshop, but it's so far the, the best tool. Um, for cutting DNA specifically um, at different locations. And I think there's right now one gene therapy trial that's coming out and, and uh, using it. And I certainly I certainly think that, you know, every gene therapy is, is probably going to, you know, um, use a variation of the CRISPR system just because it's much more convenient and um, it's, very, uh, it's a very tight system, meaning that it won't cut anywhere else, um, or at least, you know, 
not at detectable levels, so it's much safer to use than um, other systems that have been used in the past. So I think you're going to see a transition over uh, to the system as a result. So what is GDF11 and CPF1, and why is it important to lifespan research? Uh, GDF, oh, uh, are you talking, so this was, this, I think the first compound was something that was isolated in, or potentially isolated in blood uh, during something called Reary Frankensteining experiment called parabiosis, where you fuse the, the blood systems of two mice. Um, and usually these, these studies now are done where you fuse um, an old mouse with a young mouse, and the blood of the young mice has a rejuvenating effect on the old mouse. And um, it's, it's really quite striking how well that works. And, but the question is, why is it working? What's, what's the magical ingredient in, in the blood of young mice, right? Uh, and uh, GDF11 was basically one compound that um, may still, it's controversial, may or may not be um, a major player in this. Um, it was isolated in, in a lab at, at Harvard and suggested to play a role. So, you know, if, if that compound or other compounds that are found in um, you know, the, the blood of younger mice proves to be, you know, um, having an aging reversal effect or in the case of these studies showing greater capacity to repair damaged muscle, then this could also be a potential augmentative that, that people can take because, you know, if, if these are levels of this compound that deplete over time. And CPF1, I believe, was uh, something completely unrelated. That was actually a different variant of um, a protein that, uh, so Cas9 is CRISPR-associated protein number nine. CPF1 was a different CRISPR-associated protein, and it's a lot smaller. So I think the a lot of these gene therapies rely on viral vectors to, to get into a cell. There's not a lot of space in the virus to pack in genetic information. So having something smaller that can, it would, you know, would allow more space for other gene sequences that are, have therapeutic value. So um, that's, that's probably why people are, are excited about that uh, in the gene therapy field. So you've spoken there about... Um a few of the things like uh, GDF and CPF. Uh, what other terms would you familiarize someone getting into the sort of like the CRISPR side of things to just understand the whole process of it? Well, it's you know CRISPR again, like I mentioned earlier, is is a tool. You would I would I would recommend kind of not just focusing so much on CRISPR, but also focusing on the other elements you need to successfully you know. Um, do something with it, right? So to have a project. So in order to, to, to do this, you need to know about gel, gel electrophoresis, you, know, you need to know about DNA sequencing, you need to know about purifying DNA, you need to know about um, incubating microbes and using selective media, and of course you need to know about CRISPR. And there's a couple other things I left out. So, you know, CRISPR all alone is just as useless as a hammer all alone, right? You need to you need the nails, you need the lumber, you need all of that other stuff. So, um, and that's something we offer at, at GenSpace, our, our classes that are basically like uh, boot camps for biotech. Um, and that allows people to learn about all these tools, but in the, in basically in context, right? So, so how would you use CRISPR to engineer a, a living cell to um, 
incorporate a certain piece of foreign DNA, right? So you start with something that's completely unmodified, and then you end up with something modified. Then you have to do everything in between. And CRISPR is just one part of that those steps. So where does that fit in in that process? So so people would you know um, knowing about CRISPR is fine, but but you know if you really want to use it, you have to know all those steps and where it fits in. So there's obviously quite quite a lot to know. Um, there's another term as well that that keeps sort of popping up. It's CPG Island. Could you explain sort of like in the most layman term you can what that means and also what it means to your research? Yeah, well, um, I briefly mentioned a term earlier uh, called um, the epigenome or epigenetics. And uh, this is sort of um, a code that's overlaid over the genetic code, which is your kind of hard code, which is your A's, T's, G's, and C's in your your DNA. Um, And the only way that's going to change is if there's a mutation involved directly in, in that um, and one letter becomes another letter. Epigenome is a lot more flexible in that it's certain chemical groups that get added either onto the DNA themselves, such as methyl groups, or other small groups that get added to proteins that are tightly associated with the DNA uh, that help wind it up, such as histones, and groups such as acetyl groups. And there's dozens of other types of chemical groups, and only a few are very kind of well characterized. And these are these essentially what these these chemical modifications do is they have certain genes turned on and certain genes turned off, but in a very um, in a in a manner in which they're turned off during the lifespan of the organism. So if you have if you have methylation taking place on a CPG island, and that's essentially what a CPG island is, it's just a cytosine. The P is just means phosphate, the phosphodiester backbone, and the guanine. So, so it's seed. So you get a lot of CG repeats, and these are found in certain areas that where you need to turn off certain genes, um, and they're usually methylated. Um, and when they're methylated, they're they're turned off. So if you, so if you want to reprogram a cell to become another cell. Um, you have to affect the epigenetic status rather than the genetic status. So the different reason why you have a neuron, uh, why 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 that you have a neuron versus versus a um, a white blood cell isn't primarily due to the genetic code. It's primarily due to the epigenetic code because the genetic code is very similar or you know almost almost identical except for a few few spots like that are used for um, you know producing antibodies. Um, but really, there you know it's the code is practically identical, but the epigenome shuts down and turns on certain regions that are peculiar to a cell type. So it's like the genetic code is all the data in a file cabinet, and the epigenome allows certain files to be opened at certain times, and you want that to be precisely controlled. Um, so that's where the you know CPG island thing comes in, but there's a lot of other... Um, modifications that are that are out there and the epigenome is another thing that might be um, altered as we age we certainly see epigenetic changes take place and and also the epigenome is important in um, induced pluripotent stem cells um, if you want to convert a, a cell into a stem cell and then into another cell you have to alter its epigenetic status so you know this is obviously a, a very um, important field for just just those reasons. So you mentioned, uh, you know, possible changes. Uh, is it possible for people to use tools like this to alter their own genetic genetic information and change certain aspects of their appearance, whether it be color of eyes, hair, skin, available now, or is that more of like a, a future um, science fiction type of thing? Um, that 
probably, well, certainly changing your epigenome will, will change certain traits, definitely. You know, the, the question is, you know, you don't want to make changes that turn cells cancerous. And I, I doubt you'd be able to change eye color or something like that just because that's hard-coded into your genetic code. Um, so that's that's um, not going to change. Um, but there could be certain other things. For example, you know, when a cell is aging, it undergoes certain epigenetic changes. Can we can we recreate those changes and make a cell more youthful? Is is that a key component of aging? Um, and that's not very clear at the moment. It certainly, is a possibility. Certainly, some of the more kind of I, I don't want to say far out in a bad way, but kind of far out in cutting edge, and we're not sure if this is possible yet, or if this hypothesis is correct. But certain uh, researchers have postulated that perhaps traumatic incidences like post-traumatic stress syndromes um, are a result of epigenetic modifications in neurons, just because um, the onset it very, very much seems like an epigenetic change in that you have an immediate response to some traumatic incident, and then you have a reoccurring, you have something that's kind of locked in. And if that's if that's the case, then you can potentially come up with a drug that can kind of change that epigenetic modification and reverse or, you know, remove um, uh, these sort of negative behaviors. So that's that's one, one kind of uh, edgy... Um, area of research right now so i know i know you sort of just mentioned that you you know changing things like eye color and stuff is hard-coded now it may be my naivety this sort of question but if some dna can be changed and some can't what implications does that mean in terms of like um obviously a lot of the criminal system revolves around dna is that a totally different side of dna or by modifying that dna do you then have to recheck DNA in criminal cases and things like that. Well, that's you know that's that's a bit different because you're you're um, you're basically looking at a pattern of sequences that's uh, that's present in all of your cells. So unless you change the genetic code of every single one of your cells, which um, you know I don't want to say impossible, but um, <laughs> impossible in layman's terms, highly unlikely in scientific terms, that's going to happen. Um, I don't think that's that's going to be an issue. What could be an issue is since DNA is now very easily created in a laboratory, that you know you could potentially um, spread different DNA at a crime scene and use that to frame someone else, or um, or you know throw other DNA to you know out there um, so it kind of covers up your DNA. So that's that's a possibility. So. How is uh, CRISPR-Cas9 to be used in gene therapy, and what is multiplexing in the context of it? Well, um, so the multiplexing is basically, that's just a fancy word for meaning do a lot of things in parallel. And the multiplexing that they're speaking of is doing many changes all at once in a cell. So since CRISPR is, Cas9 is a two-component system, um, by having multiple different nucleic acids expressed at one time, you can get multiple different programmable endonucleases appear at the same time in the cell and essentially make multiple changes at the same time in a chromosome. So instead of cutting and splicing one gene at a time, you can do 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or whatever the 
the, the limits are for a particular cell type. So that's that's some, something like that would have to, if not this technology, something that does this type of multiplexing will have to, you know, um, be developed if you want to do some something really far out, like let's say bring back extinct animals, right? Because one way to do that, if you want to bring back woolly mammoth, is, is sequence the elephant genome now, sequence the woolly mammoth genome, compare the two sequences, and make all the requisite changes in the elephant genome to basically convert the elephant to a woolly mammoth. But in order to do that, you probably have to do millions of changes. So, you know, maybe it's not maybe it's not going to be millions of changes. You know, I don't know. It could be between anywhere between a few changes to several million. But you're gonna have to do some sort of multiplexing, otherwise it's gonna take you forever. And by that time woolly mammoths will probably have just naturally evolved. So it seems like there's Yeah. So sorry go. I was just going to say, what was the other question you had? Was it always CRISPR and, and, and gene therapy? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier that, that uh, CRISPR is just the latest iteration of tools for, for um, cutting DNA so you can insert and modify the DNA in, in certain locations. And there's variants of CRISPR that have very, very low offsite targeting, meaning that they'll only go into the location they're supposed to go and not do anything you know, um, bad anywhere else. Uh, so given that reason and the fact that it's a very modifiable system, so you can really tailor it to cut where, where you want it to precisely cut, um, and it's simple to work with, relatively speaking, compared to other systems, um, it's going to make uh, this system very useful and probably, um, probably kind of the standard for gene therapies for a while. So they talk about it being um, very modifiable. Uh, and also you can sort of target a specific area. Does CRISPR have a possibility to be used in like chemotherapeutics and things like that? Well, I mean, again, you have to use it for, for a particular purpose. I mean, CRISPR, the, the enzyme, the Cas9 component that does the cutting can also be modified to not cut, but essentially modify the, the epigenetic status. Uh, for example, that's kind of the latest work that, that's come out. So. You know, having the CRISPR system change genes is one thing, but I mean, there's really several components that need to come into play if you're going to have a successful gene therapy. One is that you need to cut the DNA at a precise location, but we didn't talk about the two other very important components, which are the delivery. So how is it going to get into the cell that it needs to get into? Do you do this in the body or do you take the cells out? target them and then put them back into the body and that depends will depend on the cell type you're working with and how do you do that right probably using some modified viral vector and how do we ensure that that's efficient so that's that's one problem that the CRISPR system doesn't address right that's so you need to have that working and the other problem is is when you want to do the changes um, usually you want to insert something that let's say a, a good copy of a gene so where's that good copy going to come from? Well, you need to you need to synthesize the good copy and then use the body's um, DNA repair mechanisms to kind of sneak that good copy in. And currently, this is something I'm working on in my lab, which is trying to make that part of the pathway, which is called homologous recombination or homology-mediated repair, um, much more efficient because just by cutting the DNA using CRISPR, well, you still have to modify the DNA now, right? So you have another pathway to worry about. So um, once you put all of this together, then then you can direct it towards a specific cell and perhaps direct it towards uh, cancer cells or direct it towards, uh, you know, uh, hepatocytes in the liver, you know, if they're infected with a, a virus to, you know, to target the viral DNA. Uh, so those those would be some some applications. 
So with all your projects in mind uh, that you've mentioned previous and the different groups that you've been involved with helping develop, what is the biggest impact you want to make? Um, what is your aim? And almost what would you like to be remembered for? Um, I guess easiest way to rephrase is when someone Googles your name, what do you hope they see first? Well, that I invented or discovered something well in general that i invented or discovered something cool um and you know it could be it could be um it could be a novel tool such as you know a much more efficient gene therapy um or perhaps i contributed in some way eventually to getting a you know a theoretical understanding of aging um or three which is, is a little far out there but um I'm still waiting for it, and I don't think I can wait any longer because, to me, growing up and reading popular science, this is essentially what the future is all about, um, flying cars. I want, I want a flying car. I want a hover car, and I don't see that. So uh, I've, got, I've got my pocket communicator um, in, in my phone, which unfortunately is also a tracking device. Um, but I don't, I don't have, my, I don't have a, a flying car in which to get away with once they track me down. So that's something I need to... I need to work on. So we sort of know what, what your plans are and all the projects you've been involved in. And there are several, several different things that you've achieved. So I think it's fantastic. Um, if, if you were to try and narrow down either a professional moment or a real sort of human emotional moment, what, what would your light bulb moment be? Or sort of like a challenge or hurdle that was solved or it could be, you know, anything that's happened along the way that you'd pinpoint to one, one moment? Uh, that's really hard. Um, I mean, you, you get a lot of these little moments you know, which is what scientists crave, is that you, you, you see something that nobody else has seen, and for one brief moment, you're the first and only person on planet Earth who's seeing something, you know, the way it's supposed to be seen, the way it's meant to be seen. And that's That happens very infrequently, and you have to keep your mind open to see that and realize that when something unexpected happens in the laboratory, that try to follow that direction try not to unintentionally throw it in the waste bin um so i've you know i've noticed a few little cool things that you know in, in when i worked in a, as a graduate student that kind of laid beside and you know i might pick up in the moment some observations where you kind of start out looking and you're like huh that's funny right and some scientists uh, i think it was peter metaboric and others and I, just, I can't remember who it is but said that's either I'm really mangling this, so I'm going to just grossly paraphrase it, that the most um, that the most kind of powerful thing a scientist can say is, in the course of their research is, huh, that's funny, uh, because that usually means that some key discovery is about to be made. Do you see any sort of union going forward of grinding uh, side of biohacking and your own research into biotechnology and life extension? I know from about grinding, right? Is is that is that basically adding in surgical implants into your body to do certain things? Um, well, I'm not I'm not ready for it because you know I don't think the technology's ready there. Um, as far as the cost benefit, you know, is is concerned. But certainly, certainly, you know, um, if it's going to augment my abilities or it's going to fix something, then I mean, we're all kind of grinding, right? I mean, the first artificial toe was in ancient Egypt and it was an articulated wooden toe um, 
And um, so we've always been, been doing that. I mean, I'm not going to put in some silicone implants just for the hell of putting in a silicone implant. It's got to do something. Um, you know, uh, I wear contacts occasionally, right? That's, uh, that's something. Um, if, if uh, you know, if I lose a limb, I would want something that's not only replicates my lost limb, but something that's even better if that's possible, especially if I'm, you know, doing some sort of hobby. Um, so I think, you know, I think these implants will, and, and certainly, you know, um, neural implants are, are a, a, another factor. Um, but I think they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, there's a, there's a right time for having these types of things done and the right reason, at least according for me, um, I'm, you know, I'm not going to put in an RFID tag or, or magnet under my skin anytime soon, um, just because they're, the benefits to that uh, don't outweigh the inconvenience or the risk, at least currently. So in terms of like development, uh, what do you see is the future for biotechnology or genetic therapy, anything you're working in or would like to be seen working in in the next few years? Yeah, well, I mean, the project I'm working in now, which is which is trying to uh, trying to make homology-mediated repair much more efficient. Um, and that sounds kind of boring, but um, basically, once you once like I said, once you cut DNA, you have to paste something in, and that pasting process is currently very slow and very inefficient in in many cell types. So if we can kind of improve both, you know, it'll be sort of like chocolate and peanut butter. We'll go well together and um, we'll, have a, we'll have a very tasty gene therapy. That's a bad analogy. Um, but that's, so that's, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm working on right now. So have you considered uh, your research being used towards a collaboration with one of these multiple groups that are popping up now, SpaceX, um, old NASA, and the other, other companies are coming up just for their making the race to Mars, but even further, you know, just looking at the practicality of just exploration within our own solar system, it's going to take a lot of time. And life extension is just practically a good thing even down to, you know, further, like you were talking about earlier, the stream in Brooklyn that was, you know, highly toxic, and then preserving the microbes there, converting, you know, surviving and converting, uh, could that, those type of topics, those type of research come in handy, very practically being applied towards terraforming Mars, colonization of the moon, and just exploring away from our little lifeboat in space, you might say. Yeah, sure. I mean, one aspect of, of genetic engineering, one, one big branch of genetic engineering now is, is called synthetic biology, which is basically um, trying to standardize or come up with genetic standards, much like you have in electrical engineering or, or in software, I guess. Um, so basically a way to make genetic engineering much more um, predictable. Um, and a lot of the applications have to do deal with our um, climate change. Um, so can, can we make certain crop plants um, instead of annuals, make them perennials, right, which would be easier on the soil? Can we make them fix their own nitrogen so we don't have to use tons and tons of, of, of fertilizer that's been, you know, uh, synthesized in factories and leads to runoff into waters and leads to 
eutrophication, which is causing algae to grow everywhere and choke off the fish? Um, can we make plants uh, more salt tolerant so we don't use up our freshwater supplies? Um, you know, watering plants. Uh, so these are, you know, these are all um, projects that are taking place right now, and certainly you can potentially think of modifications that can be done to crop plants that would enable them to thrive on soils that um, that uh, are in you know some other alien you know region so Mars for example when they landed the lander um, I think one thing they noticed was there was a lot of this compound in the soil called perchlorate which is um, an oxidizer and it's 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 also you know um, found polluting a lot of these superfund sites so you know could you come up with microbes that you know convert the perchlorate into something um benign uh basically you know cause it perhaps to outgas as oxygen um so you know these are I, I i certainly see um i certainly see uh synthetic biology and i, I know that nasa has you know on their website somewhere you know they they're they're really branching into synthetic biology right now um Another aspect of synthetic biology could be making certain uh, microbes, you know, super nutritious. Like you can you can modify yeasts or um, spirulina, blue green algae, to give them a higher protein content, right? So you could now grow your you know your your own superfood in a small kind of environment um, instead of you know um, bringing in uh, tons of food. You know you could you could utilize the utilize the soil and the and, and the water from an alien environment and basically you know uh grow your own superfood so we don't have to resort to soil green so uh, quick question before we transition and close is there anything that you'd like to add in to our conversation today or have we covered everything um, I think we've ranged pretty, pretty far, I think, and, and, and kind of through a lot of topics. So there's certainly a lot more topics, um, but I know we all have things to do. Have we um, covered how people can keep track of your, your progress and your, your research? Um, i got to get better at that. I certainly, um, <laughs> on, on uh, lifespan.io, um, you can keep track of other people's research very well um, and, and see how well we're doing funding projects. Um, right now, we don't have the latest project up. We have three projects that closed, but within by the end of the month, we're going to have, we expect to have another project uh, up very, very shortly. Uh, that's really, really cool. Um, so if people want to get involved in the research, this is probably the best way most direct way to do it, I would say, other than uh, giving up six years of your life and going into Hebrew, not that bad. Well, actually, it's kind of a slog, but so so this is a way to vicariously um, get your get your uh, masters. Definitely a special thanks to Alar Medovic for taking the time to talk to us today. If you want to learn more about this journey we take weekly, check out 
dangerousminds.io. All of us want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within the vastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and plantable technology today. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments. You're welcome to find us at dangerousminds.io, and perhaps one day we'll talk to you about the work and or projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week, seek the spark. Project won't compile, it'll be alright Computer science for life, and that's my direction Instead of be bowls, my home is throw exception